This is Daniel Figella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to the AI in Business Podcast. This is episode six of our eight-part Saturday series called AI Futures. Every Saturday, we are bringing a new window into the future, looking at how human life is going to change on a day-to-day basis as AI becomes not just more common, more popular, but also astronomically more powerful if we look 10 or more years into the future. This week, our focus is on security and privacy, and some of the considerations around how that's handled today that might need to be changed or altered as AI becomes much more powerful and a much larger part of our day-to-day life, our interaction with businesses, our interactions with each other, and the way we work and live. Our guest this week is Dr. Joanna Bryson. She is a professor of ethics and technology at the Harty School in Berlin. She was previously on the computer science faculty at the University of Bath. And she's been one of nine experts nominated by Germany to the Global Partnership for Artificial Intelligence. He's previously been associated with the Department of Psychology at Harvard, the Department of Anthropology at Oxford, and many others. I was introduced to Joanna through John Havens. If those of you who are tuned in last Saturday heard our episode here on the AI Futures series with Jonathan Havens of the IEEE, he was kind enough to know a great many people in this domain of privacy and security in the future of AI and had put me in touch with Joanna. Joanna is not only someone with some perspectives on the longer-term future of artificial intelligence, but also someone with both policy expertise and experience and experience speaking to business leaders. So unlike the vast majority of academics, and we don't have many of them on the show here, but unlike the vast majority of academics that we have in the program, uh, Joanna talks about some of the business consequences and implications of artificial intelligence. And her perspective, which I think is an important one and one that I believe is a bit more common in Europe than in the United States uh, for the time being, is around how artificial intelligence should be managed, again, from a security and privacy perspective. And what that looks like from a practical perspective. So we talk about real use cases, real implications and applications, and some of Joanna's thoughts about how these technologies might have ramifications moving forward. So again, if you're interested in having a window into the kind of world we're building with AI, how we're going to interact with companies, how we're going to interact with each other, I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Without further ado, this is Professor Joanna Bryson here on the AI Future Series of the AI in Business Podcast. So, Joanna, I'm glad we're able to catch up today, and I know we're going to be speaking about the future of the human experience when it comes to the evolution of AI. Um, I'd like to, in this series, start with where things are starting to roll forward already today, and different experts have different opinions. You have a very unique take of your own. I know you can think longer term, but when you think about AI as of now in terms of how it's altering how we live, what normal is, what do you think are the most significant bits there already? Well, I, first of all, I'm really glad that you asked that. A lot of people think of AI as something that's a, a future thing that might or might not happen, whereas you know, artificial intelligence is a set of software techniques that we've had for decades. And so it really is important when we're talking about the, the long-distant future to think about, well, I mean, depending on what you mean, the long-distant past. So we, we really do have to look at uh, the last 50 years um, of how we've been altered already by digital technology. Now, one of the tricks there, you may have noticed, I just slided sideways into digital technology from AI. Um, And that's because of a lot of the conversations, the definitions, the arguments people get into around uh, the the term AI. So if what you mean by AI is something that's exactly like a person, 
then I would basically argue at length with you that you will never have that exactly produced with something that isn't a person. You know, a lot of what it is to be human is the set of constraints that we have as apes, right? And that alters how we can learn, what we can perceive, what actions we're capable of, the time rate at which we're able to respond, things like that. Okay, so you're not going to get that out of something that you've built out of silicon. It's just not like that. But if what you mean, what I mean when I talk about artificial intelligence is the subset of all intelligent things, which somebody's made intentionally, right? It's an artifact. So intelligence modified by artifact, not, not, not rocket science, but you'd be surprised how much people argue with that. And, and when I talk about intelligence, I'm talking about things that can respond to the present context. So I am perfectly okay with, uh, again, this is like a religious war, but I'm okay. I'm on the side with the idea that a thermostat is intelligent or a plant is intelligent, just not very. Okay. So then we can start, if, as long as we know what we're talking about, now we can talk about the sort of slippery slope that gets us to the present and then into all these potential futures, okay? And I think that the biggest changes that we've seen, in, if we look at the last 30 years or so, have actually been more about the communication capacity, like the smartphones, and before them, just the mobile phones. So our capacity to get intelligence from each other than so much the machines. Although we are seeing increases in efficiency because we had, you know, PCs that, that, that changed, massively, massively changed some businesses, you know, that you didn't need, uh, for example, in a bank, you didn't need tons of tellers, you could have a small number of tellers and you could get rid of the, the manager and then you could have more branches, which people wanted. So you, you, you had these, these transformations, which people didn't recognize, except, you know, when occasionally something went horribly wrong. <laughs> but by and large, they hadn't noticed. And you have to look at this 30-year perspective to say things like, oh, wow, now bank branches are much smaller entities that are nearby us. Also, uh, families. I think there's been a huge, huge shift in the family that's been one of the most fundamental to ordinary human lives, really. Uh, and that's the... You know, people talk about the micromanagement of children as if, you know, because it limits the freedom of children, that children can't, you know, walk home from school by themselves or something like that. But it's not just the children who, whose lives are altered. Adults, their parents, they're changing 15% of their time is now donated to this problem of negotiating. They don't, de they don't get to mic totally micromanage one way, right? So what it means to be a family has completely altered since like 1990. And, and people don't think of that as one of the changes of AI. But if, if you go back to this idea that actions, you know, intelligence is changing actions because of perceptions, well, how we can act and how what we can perceive is altered by these changes in technology, right? So it's not something that the devices are doing to us. And it drives me crazy when people say, oh, you know, algorithms are changing, you know, whatever. No. We change things with algorithms, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they didn't fall from the sky and start influencing us in nefarious ways against our wills, right? <laughs> well, they, they, they do influence us. Uh, people are influencing us in nefarious there, there ways. There we go. People, people are. Yeah, pe people are. Right. Right. Somebody's steering right. the ship here. Yeah, for the most Almost, part. Well, I think for businesses, so I talked about families. Let me yeah. say quickly for businesses. Sure. One of the big uh, mistakes that was made because of AI and then has sometimes been recovered from is an introduction of a fragility where you, you, you put the AI in between people. So people couldn't call each other. Rather, they just called a software system or filled in a form or something. 
And at first, you know, people kind of got rid of that when they realized they're losing customers, depending on the, on the organization. Uh, but then sometimes they just put it, they stuck it back into their business process. So again, going back to a bank, you might walk in and say, I have this problem and nobody in the room that you're talking to, actually, this would never happen with a bank. Think about like AT&T or something. You okay, walk sure, into sure. A, phone, a phone store and it's the same as looking with a form that you typed on the internet. There's no way to describe your particular problem, even though there's a human there that can see and understand it, but they can't do anything about it because they're just typing into the form for you. Yeah. Right? Well, I think one of the big mistakes people have made with AI, it, it is very efficient. It allows you to be efficient, but you can constrain what you're able to perceive to what you anticipated perceiving. And so I, I always say that for, for businesses, one of the most important things they can do is to make sure that they recognize the importance of that path from human to human. That the technology is a means by which you make those humans more powerful. It's not the individual humans, right? But it's not a way to, to totally replace a person. And it's not sensible to make it so humans aren't able to talk to the manager, you know, the, or, or the customer, right? There has to be a direct flow, both to be able to handle exceptions, but also to get new business ideas. So that, I think that's a direction that, again, we've we've recovered. A lot of a lot of organizations have recovered, but it's a it's a it's a, a wrong turn. A lot of places took for a while. Yeah, it spawns from uh, myriad misconceptions about what AI is capable of. Like, well, it can just answer customer service, like it, like it's a thing, like it's a person, right? Um, and, and answer as if it there's understanding and that all that learning is happening. Like you're saying, it sounds like there's some transformation business processes, but that at least as of right now, the human to human connection and, and some of those inner learnings is, is uh, you know, still the role of people uh, at the time being. Well, I don't think that the, I, I, so what I was making as a recommendation, I don't think that's really going to change. So fundamentally hmm. what humans are is a social species. And so if you're really going to have a business around getting people to do things for you, you know, like give you their money or whatever, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got to be able to handle and understand humans. And that requires basically other humans that have, we are the best communication devices for each other. So I think, I, I was going to say, as long as we're talking about uh, these changes that, that, as I said, business has largely gotten around. Unfortunately, some businesses, depending on their model, what they're trying to do, and also worse, uh, some governments have taken that as a means to uh, eliminate people that they don't want to worry about. So, for example, forcing people to only be able to fit into these little forms, and if they fail to get into the form, they can't have uh, products or services. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's, a, it's a mechanism for social exclusion, which we are seeing um, possibly deliberately being used by some some governments. There's all kinds of stuff we want to talk about China or the you know, uh, whatever else. I mean, there, there's a, uh, yes, myriad, myriad nefarious, uh, nefarious, funky way. So cool. No, no, no. I, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I know you want to go further, but just a second. Yes. China, you know, the Uyghurs, re-education camps, terrifying. On the other hand, not quite as bad as a lot of stuff that happened in the 19th, on the 20th century, where there was like 128 um, mass genocides, you know? So, so <laughs> I'm not saying, I think it would be a good thing to live in the re-education camp, but, oh, yeah, but I'm that let's let's keep these things in perspective and look at what was done uh, by some of these countries in in the past. But anyway, I was actually describing the UK uh, and what they did with their social security, and and I think Got you it. could probably find places in America that have done it too. Oh yeah, no, I, I would estimate as much. I would not correlate the UK social security thing with weaker camps. I'm not going to put those on the same level, like kind of point blank <laughs> period with you. I just won't do it. But I, I feel you. You know, we can look at all kinds of 
examples of you know ills, uh, and certainly AI can feed into them. And, and your example with healthcare, I think, is one that everybody in the West can look at and say, maybe we don't want to go that direction. So, so we're talking about kind of maybe the good and the bad in terms of today's shifts with AI and some of the foibles we've made. This is all taking us somewhere. And you're one of the thinkers, which is what I appreciate you, and I think why John Haven said, hey, you got to talk to Joanna for this series, that kind of carries things forward a bit. So I know we're going to get into the more distant future, but when you think 10, 20 years in the future, some people think, oh, well, video games will be more immersive or cell phones will be smaller. But I happen to think that really the fundamental human experience, just like it's changed, you mentioned the past. I think that's so important. How much has it changed in 50 years? Well, if we go forward, even just another 10, 20, what are some of the shifts of the new normal, just way of living and doing that you think are really important to think about? Yeah, no, I, the ones that we were just debating, I think, are the really big things. The, the questions of to what extent do we allow ourselves to be nudged by whom? You know, if, if you choose as, a, as, a, as an adult or, or if you choose as an adult for your children to say, okay, I want to be, you know, thinner, more efficient, I don't know, whatever your goal is. And then you have uh, services, digital services that are nudging you into those directions. That's one thing. But if your government is choosing this without your consent, or if a foreign government is hacking into your government, or if there's products that are just taking uh, your attention, you know, as you say, for you could say nefarious, they're just trying to maximize profits. Yep. Uh, but I hate people oversimplify. They say, oh, corporations are only about maximizing profits. Look, even if that was true, which I reject, I mean, corporations are made out of humans and we have lots of different goals. A lot of people are very excited to provide new possible businesses, new possible things humans can do. And that's their central motivation thing. But anyway, even if you say, let's just simplify this all and say that maximizing profits is the way that we think of what corporations do. Well, listen, you can't maximize profit. It doesn't come in an instant. You can't maximize profit without thinking about the future. And so you've got, so it is in the interest of every organization to be thinking about how can I have sufficient stability that my customers are going to persist, that I can keep hiring employees, you know, that, that, that my business model is, even makes any sense whatsoever. And that stability can include, of course, agility, right? It, it can include, that. in fact, it has to include how do I handle change? But if you don't have something that is recognizably you, then you haven't persisted. And so you're not going to be paying any money to your shareholders. Right? There has to be something there that still has the same liabilities and, and is still producing the wealth so that the shareholders even are a coherent concept. So when I, 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 I that might have been a bit of a tangent, but yeah, it's I, all right. it's I, fun I, stuff. when I go out and think in the 20 year future, it's hard to do this in the COVID era without thinking not only about the changes we've seen in the last year, but the bigger changes that we know we have to experience to get to the point of sustainability, right? And and I got to say, the first time I was talking to a government, like it wasn't one government, it was like a bunch of European governments in a, in a circle. And I had been given like five minutes, and, you know, other people had like 15, but I was the new kid on the block. I had been listening to other people and they were talking about taxing robots. And I said, listen, if I am a programmer, <laughs> and so if you write some law, for me, that tells me how robots are going to be taxed. You know, robots aren't like people. You just you don't just look around the room and see how many robots there are. We can build them any way we want. And so you tell me what the tax law is, and I will build the robot to pay none of it. 100%. So the the people around the table just paled. It was exactly what they had not been told by any of the other people that were coming in. But I was, as someone who can actually write software, was able to bring them a different perspective. Okay, so my second experience like that (laughs) happened here. 
and it was talking to the German government. I'm in Berlin now. I don't know if you mentioned that in the yeah, introduction. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Berlin now, and and uh, and a part of the German government. The in fact, it's the Ministry for Labor and Society, which happens to be one of the three that are in charge of AI in Germany. Anyway, I was talking to them, and I said, "Well, now that we've seen how it goes with COVID, you have an idea of how it's going to have to be when you deal with uh, climate change." And that was again like everybody just like nobody wanted to hear that that because it has not been easy dealing with COVID, not in democracies. So realizing that there was even bigger and more complex challenges that were coming, um, and that they had to you know keep the you know solve the problems and keep people on board, you know that's a huge problem. So looking in the ten to twenty year future, and again going back to China, I mean, how are even if we look at next year, how can we say? Look, we care about fundamental rights, and they'll say, "Then why are so many of your citizens dead?" You know, right? So, so like, who who has better protected fundamental rights in the last year, right? China or the United States? It's 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 a tough call, right? You do the wrong kind of yoga in the park, and they break your legs and get your organs, and then over here, you know, you're going to die from a virus that could have been prevented. You got to pick your poison, right? Well, I, I don't know if we do have to pick our poison. I would prefer that we, we get away from both of those bad outcomes. Oh, I, you know? I'm with you. I'm a high five on that one. High five on that one. But, yes, but let's the get rid of both of those. We have weakened our own position. Um, and and we've right. exposed that You're was right. what they've been saying for some time. The fact that you can manipulate democracy through social media is exposing a weakness in our structure of environment. The fact that you can have corruption that leads to uh, limits on, on human freedoms is, is yep. exposing a fragility in their style. Of yeah, yeah. I'm totally with you. I really think there's something to be said of that. And did you want to, a lot of you know people talk at the surface level about social into the future in terms of manipulation as we were in this kind of 20 year range before we leap a little bit further, which I'm excited about. But as we're talking yeah. about kind of how human life will, will, you know, alter. Of course, none of us have a crystal ball, but when you think about what might be radically different if we wake up on, uh, you know, 2040 and just kind of live a day, is social part of that picture of what you think will be radically different or governance in general? It's really hard to say. I mean, one of the things that could, I, I, and I don't have a prediction about when this might happen, but if we don't get on top of the privacy aspects, if we don't get on top of these kind of invasive things, then it may be that there'll be there will come a year that at least for some countries that no we will not have any digital technology in our homes because that's associated with disappearances or something like that you know so you could imagine it being radically radically different the other concern of course is the sort of the slow that that we're already the frogs uh, halfway boiled in the um, being turned into the matrix situation where everybody stays home and plays computer games and and whatever and that they aren't having as many human interactions. Now, the COVID era, at least in Germany, but I, I think this is true in a lot of the world, has helped people refocus on their home life. And, and we hear about the horrible stories about domestic abuse, of course. Yeah, But terrible. I have surveys that were showing that like over like 73, 74% of couples are saying that their relationship is stronger than the beginning, hmm. that, that they had been refocusing on, on what they had chosen and finding out that it was pretty good. Which actually, I am not one of these raving anti-capitalist people. I always thought those people were kind of crazy. But, you know, there's a lot to answer to if we actually had set up our lives in a really wonderful way and that we hadn't even noticed until we got slammed in by a, by a virus. You know? that, that's nuts. Isn't that, isn't, isn't that the West in general? I lived in San Francisco and they think that their lives are the hardest, like, worst lives in, in all of humanity, right? Like, the, in the entirety of the history of man. 
like they live in just the most oppressed and worst possible version of the world. Really? I think that's what the West thinks. I think the, I we I think the West is ignorant that. of history and the rest of the world almost all of the time. But I love hearing your news, though. 73%. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, exactly. It's just incredible. And and the so, yeah, most people actually have found, most people who were in relationships, of course, not. it's a very different yeah. situation for particularly young people, but anyone that was between relationships is, although there's apparently been also a huge increase in the interest in monogamy. <laughs> so some people have just you know, come to terms and entered relationships. Survival threats maybe are making people think, who knows what that yeah. is. But, anyway. but for some people, of course, it has been worse. And I don't want yeah. to diminish the problems of with the, yeah. uh, that proportion. But, but overall, apparently, again, maybe it was something to do with Germany and, and at least the early part of this year, not so much now, we did very well out of the COVID. Uh, people had higher satisfaction, not only in their relationships, but also with their governments, with all kinds of things. Wow, wow. Higher satisfaction with the, yeah, in the US, of course, we didn't have much of that. <laughs> well, I haven't experienced ho- that, no. Hopefully that's going to be changing now, but uh, yeah, my fingers are crossed. By, so. You touched really quickly on being, I hope I quote this in the future, but halfway baked frog in the pan to the matrix. And yeah. I talk a lot about the hikikomori in Japan and, and these, these men that have already escaped into the, the, the digital world almost entirely and yeah. about COVID sort of tilting. Hopefully a lot of folks, you know, I don't know if good or bad, maybe some healthy habits, some unhealthy habits, but much more digital. And we have a lot of deaths of despair in this country of America of folks that kind of lose sense of meaning and they go out through opiates and drugs and it's not called a suicide, but but it's sort of, it's a proxy. And I, I, you know, I do worry about that shift. When you look farther out, you know, we're talking a decade or two, do you think there's more forces pulling us in towards the matrix than, than away? Or what are your thoughts about, about that time horizon? Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a techno-determinist. I think that what we choose to do matters. So I could see it going either direction. So I think, it, I think it's really important. One of the things, it, you know, one of the reasons I, we moved back to Europe is there does seem to be collective attitude here about how do we do sustainability that is kind of winning right now. I mean, it is probably the world's, one of the, certainly one of the world's leading economies. And so as people are realizing that they're winning, they're taking more risks and they're, and they're, taking the, and they're thinking about how these interventions go. And so if you could imagine if, if we're in a good place in 40 years, then we've come to, I don't think you can take the predisposition to compete out of what it is to be human. We need a gradient. We need to know something that, that we can climb, that we can do better on. But there's sustainable things like that. For example, having better and better art, more and more skill, going back towards having musical skills, things like that. Having you know, a desire for you know, hand, handmade uh, clothing or whatever. So there, there's things that we could go in that could be sustainable or there's unsustainable directions like wanting to have ever larger houses, right? Or you know, uh, you know wanting to have uh, ever more, you know, and you see this in some of the the sort of the counterculture of deliberately wanting big polluting cars just to just just to go against the environment. Just to right? be an absolute, you know, right. you know whatever. To burn, yeah. to burn, to burn the, to, to burn the system down. Yeah. And so I think that you will find. In fact, I've I've done science on this. This is some of the research that, that I'm not the most known for, but I do actually do a lot of natural science too and social science. And, and you find people with, it's called a competitive attitude. When, when you're willing to pay a cost to have somebody else pay a bigger cost, that's called the polite term for that is competitive. So you find more competitive attitudes in places with uh, worse economies. And, and that's probably because competition is one of the best strategies for doing well there. Whereas if you have enough wealth and, 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 it's, and it's spread around appropriately. So inequality 
creates false scarcities where a small number of people have excessive amounts of wealth they can't really do much with. And then the majority of people don't have enough to, to take risks. But if you spread the wealth you have around enough, then you can get people taking risks and producing public goods and thinking about ways that, you know, that we'll still compete. We'll still try to be the best in all kinds of, you know, at, at playing computer games, at singing, at, yeah. you know, all kinds of things at specializing, finding ways to be the best possible at something, <laughs> best possible parent, all these different things. So they're, they're, they're sustainable. And there's things like that that aren't. And I just really hope that we can focus on the sustainable ones and also maintain adequate security because we can't, we can't live in a hippie paradise where we don't think about the security aspects. Although again, security right now seems to be very much tied up in the economy. It's not just about you know, guns and, and trenches and stuff anymore. It, it is about cybersecurity yes. and having yes. the wealth and attracting people yep. to want to live in your kind of, to work with you, to trade with you and to, and to want to live in your kind of uh, uh, world view. Man, we like those freedoms we pretend that we like, then we, we better keep them strong by having those kind of economies people want to work with and, and participate with. So I'm with you there. Yeah, I was I was in a conversation once again. This is people when when people are feeling threatened, I think they tend to go into this more binary thinking. Not to sound postmodern, I used to make fun of postmoderns too, but I'm just seeing a lot of it right now because people are constructing this new narrative. Also, sounds <laughs> of the new Cold War that the only choice is to be either America or China, as if the rest of the world didn't exist. And again, we've done some research recently that shows that the rest of the world exists. Um, <laughs> wait, also, wait a second, it does? <laughs> I know, shocking. <laughs> but, but also that actually the EU and China are not that different in terms of their AI capacities, uh, innovation, a bit difference in, in market capitalization, but that's partly because the EU sees excessive market capitalization as a bad thing. If you, if you want to see big market capitalization in, in Europe, look at uh, Switzerland, which is not in the EU. Anyway, globally, there, there's plenty of other places that are doing innovation, but all of these things combined are actually, all, the rest of the world combined is not on the scale of America. It's still a monopolar world for, for AI, at least in terms of business, like for IP and for, for market capitalization. The United States is larger than the rest of the world combined. But China is not, it's still interesting that China and, and Europe and the rest of the world, those three quartiles are more equivalent. In fact, the rest of the world, including Japan, of course, but yeah, including, yeah, yeah. including uh, Saudi Arabia, the rest of the world actually does have a lot going on. And the digital makes everything more agile. I actually heard recently uh, Nye say something interesting about the fact, I mean, I had already been saying the model that the EU used to put GDPR out and to say, look, if you want to trade with us, if you want access to all our money, you have to respect the privacy of our of our of our citizens. That model doesn't require geographic contiguity. So suddenly you could be saying like, okay, so you know Ireland, you know Apple picked off Ireland, and I don't know someone else picked off uh, Luxembourg. But hey, we could partner with Indonesia, yeah. and now our market yeah. is larger than had Ireland and Indonesia yeah. and the Ireland and Luxembourg in it, right? Yeah. So suddenly, uh, th this stuff all becomes more agile, and we can think of totally new kinds of uh, partnerships uh for controlling you know the, the problems of governance and, and this is uh, i want to we're going to touch briefly on our last question but I, just to nutshell what you're saying which i think has been a lot of fun i love the quote we've done some research and the rest of the world exists that's awesome that's a headliner <laughs> right there but uh i think some some of our american listeners maybe even myself occasionally need to hear that also you know you're addressing this non-technical 
technological determinism. We have some trends that are pulling us in some directions, the half-baked matrix deal, but we've got ways of maybe you know, structuring societies people want to participate with, which will make us maybe more wealthy and safer. We've got you know, precedents of how data has been treated, and, and these are things we should consider. Last thing I'm going to bounce off here before we go today is around the more distant future. You know, we talked to Robin Hanson. He's got that book about M's. We've, we've had Nayef Al-Rodan and Nick Bostrom and some other great folks on the show that think about kind of are we tippy-toeing to some really extended, maybe not post-human, trans-human kind of, you know, realities if we look farther, far enough ahead in terms of where AI is taking us. Any big takeaways that for you, just in terms of what should be on people's radar about where we're going in a more ultimate sense, anything that's most important for you to share there? Yeah, uh, it's hard to pick one thing, but uh, I'll, I'll, rattle off a, I'll, I'll just rattle off a couple. I mean, sure. first of all, again, it's not where AI is taking us. It's what the fact that we invented AI affords us to go. And I think one of the big questions is one of the things that d- does differentiate us from the rest of nature is that, that we, we have a lot of our, you know, our instruction set isn't just our DNA, right? That we have our culture, we have our beliefs, we have our philosophies. And we write our theories of government. And these are things that bring us to, you know, bring people together that aren't necessarily related. Okay. So, so when people talk about posthumanism, some of them are talking about like really quite important concepts like, you know, actually humans can't exist without the rest of the ecology and that we need to be thinking about the world as a gestalt. And that I'm totally down with. However, some people, I've actually heard people said that I'm a, like a human supremist or you know whatever, right? But but the, my my point is that our ethical systems and our justice system, the means by which we coordinate our society, we've developed those for coordinating other humans, and we are not going to build AI that can be coordinated through that. So that's why it's absolutely essential for long-term stability, and 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 there will be governments that will bypass this, and then they're going to fail. Okay, but for long-term stability, we have to be able to hold the other humans accountable for the actions they take. Okay, so going back to this thing about culture and how important it is for us, some people think, but couldn't we make a machine that would do a better job at holding, well, yeah, all these books you see behind me, people at home can't see them, but you can see them. (laughs) These books hold, some of them have already held ideas longer than I'll ever live, right? But but they aren't they're nothing without a human reading them right they're they're literally they're just they're just paper right so so the the but by and large our technology is not as stable as certainly not even an individual human life there's very little stuff that that we build that lasts eighty years right the more so if you think about the lineage the human lineage the families and the species and things like that I don't think if if we suddenly replaced humans with with machines. The machines would fall over within, you know, 10 years of, of, of the humans not being there, you know, and whereas we've been able to perpetuate our cultures for at least 10,000 years, 10,000 years since we started writing, yep. you know. And I think probably the people that, that are thinking about this, it's less like, hey, we're going to make our microwaves like a little bit more intelligent and then let just let them run the government and let them, I think <laughs> what, what people probably imagine is more of a gradual cognitive enhancement that might, you know, eventually extend to some very different things where people don't need the same emotional needs. People can, you know, hold a lot more in their memory, borderline infinite, you know, maybe be a lot more capable in terms of potentially having the ability to to do more with the same sort of wetware, you know, by extending it. Even for you, is that just pretty darn unrealistic? Even 100 years out, just unrealistic no. as, as an extension no, 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 of where no, we're headed? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, look at humans again. And, and you don't have to look just at humans. You can look at other apes. 
that you know the use of alcohol and caffeine you know stimulants and depressives and whatever hallucinogenics that's something we've had for a long time so and it is one of the things again i'm not i'm not when i say other apes those things are amazing right they also have much more limited way than we have but they still have culture which makes them totally different from the other things actually some birds like that anyway sorry not to digress (laughs) the point is that I do anticipate that we will continue to find uh, means of cognitive enhancement as we already have been. Uh, You see all kinds of experimentation being done by militaries. Again, not always discussed. Once in a while it comes up. Um, And and again, what's going on since World War II is pilots have always been an issue. Now we're seeing a lot of AI brought in and to see, will that be a way to get to overcome human limits or whatever? I think that the again, if this is where the humanities really matter, and 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 not just the humanities, also the biomedical. You know, what is it to thrive? What is what is it to really experience dignity? Not just dignity, flourishing, flourishing yeah. and dignity. Yeah, yeah. Those, those words sound like such. That that does they sound like such wishy washy words, but they're great because exactly when it's worth making an intervention is when something is so obviously against them that you need to. Right, and so you can tell when you're really not flourishing. When you know, as you were saying, when when life expectancies are going down for a sector of society, then you say there's something happening in that sector of society. And actually, when I got to say just briefly to to address the American thing, don't forget that those life expectancies, the ones that are going down, are white male, uneducated white males, uh, uneducated me, not not having college educations. And they're still higher than uh, life expectancies than a lot of the people they compare themselves to, so other ethnicities. So I, I think what's, hap- what's happening with some of that is just that uh, your race and your gender are no longer giving you the advantage that it was giving you before. And so we need, to, we need to look at the whole and not only at these subgroups. We're actually making uh, false problems up for ourselves. Um, or I, we're, we're misclassifying the problem because yeah, yeah. the problem is already yeah. there for these other ethnicities, yeah. right? But anyway, having said that, we need to look at means by which we can flourish. And and when we bring in these hacks on ourselves, if it is something where enough of society, I mean, like, you know, hopefully all of it is benefited and we see flourishing and we see people, you know, again, flourishing can't mean having infinite numbers of babies. Flourishing has to mean something like having a, a long, sustainable life, right? And, and having a, having a, a natural uh, turnover, a natural progression. If we see that, that some things are compatible with that and some things are not compatible with that, that's going to take us time to decide what are these trade-offs? How does society want to do this? What is okay for some people to have and not others? What is something that needs to be rolled out to everyone at once? Like telephones. You know, that was the definition of a utility, that they decide you cannot just give telephones to the people in the cities. You're going to have to go give them to the people that live in far-flung places that cost you more than you'll ever make off of that. Yeah. That was a governmental decision that telephones are something everybody gets to have, right? And electricity, right? So I think there may be things like that we see in terms of AI and cognitive enhancement. Cool. I think that's an important precedent. And I know we're up on time, but it's, it's good to get a little bit of a casting our eyes forward into where the heck we're going, and, and I like being able to cast our eyes backwards to how maybe we can transfer some of those lessons. So, Joanna, thank you so much for being able to share your perspective today. This has been great. Well, it's been fun. Yeah, you're very welcome. So that wraps things up for Episode 6 of 8 
of our Saturday AI Futures series. I hope you enjoyed some of Joanna's insights. It was certainly a pleasure to have her on the program and a pleasure to be introduced to her by Mr. John Havens, who is our last guest in this series. I certainly can't say I've saved the best for last in this AI Futures series, but I've certainly saved some of the more futuristic and far-out consequences of artificial intelligence for our last two episodes. So for the previous six weeks, this week included, uh, we've painted a picture about the future of artificial intelligence and the human experience. Our next two weeks, we're continuing on that thread, but we're really starting to drum up the consequences of strong AI, that is to say, artificial intelligence that approaches or surpasses human capability, and brain computer interface? What does it look like when we can directly interface with computers through our neural cortex? Many of our listeners here in the AI and Business Podcast might have seen some of Elon Musk's tweets about topics like this over the course of the last few years, but we've decided to take them rather seriously and think in earnest about what these technologies might look like in practice and what we might do to be able to leverage them for good and potentially guide them in a direction that would lead to a better world as opposed to a worse one. So next Saturday and the Saturday following, we are really doubling down on a far-looking picture of strong AI and brain-computer interface in the future of human experience in a way that I think will end this series with a bang. So I hope to be able to keep you tuned in here on the AI Future Series next Saturday. And otherwise, be sure to stay tuned for Tuesday as we get back to our normal AI and business topics. We're going to be getting into AI use cases and trends as usual during the week. So stay tuned there and otherwise keep it locked on the weekend. And I look forward to catching you in our next episode of the AI Future Series here on the AI and Business Podcast.